been discussing on Thursday nights this subject of a new life for the last couple of weeks. And that came about because of we had uh, uh, several baptisms recently of people that really need to talk about and think about living a new life as a Christian. But when you begin to dig into the scriptures about this subject, and we tried to make it textual, we're studying Ephesians chapter 4, when you look at the text, you see that it really applies to most of us. And the only kind of Christians who are not concerned about their new life in Christ are dead Christians. Okay, I'm sorry to say it that way, but that's kind of the way it is. If you don't think about and aren't trying to figure out how to live a new life and how to be a different person than you are before, then you're, you're probably dead. Because dead people are not thinking about that. They're just dead. But if you are a person who's alive in Christ and, and trying to grow and learn more about how to get to heaven and do the right thing, well, then you're concerned about a new life. And not only in studying for this class, thinking about what this might mean, but then a couple of phone calls I've had recently from people that just, well, like yesterday afternoon, uh, evening, I, I don't know what time it was, five or six o'clock, I had a phone call from somebody just randomly was try, calling churches in the area to talk to somebody. And we talked for close to an hour about different things in this person's life one way or the other. And, and um, they need to understand that person does what it means to have a new life in Christ. It's the only it's the only help for them. It's the only thing that's ever going to make a difference. That's true for most of us. And so in thinking about this, even before this, kind of vectoring together, um, I wanted to do some lessons on, based on what I've learned myself and thought about the principles here, some lessons on the church itself. What is the church about? Because the concepts people have about the church are sometimes based in the generation they grew up in, or they're based on social understandings of what the church is. They're, they're based on misconceptions about it. And so I want to look at in some coming lessons about the church and what the Bible says about the church and what it means, what it's for, how it's supposed to be uh, for all of our benefits. And so rather than, I don't want to start there though, I want to start back here where I'm at with a new life because that's how the church starts. Okay. The church cannot begin in any place at any time according to the New Testament until men are convicted of sin. We learn this from Acts chapter 2. The church, and i got a whole sermon on this, maybe I'll preach it someday soon. The church did not begin in the book of Acts until there were a group of people that said, we've sinned. What can we do to be saved? Then the church can begin. The church doesn't begin because you go down to PNC Bank and open up a bank account and name of some church. It doesn't begin because somebody gets together and say, well, we want to, we want to form a, a 501c3 corporation called the church of so and so. That's not according to the Bible. That's not how the church begins in any place. It begins when you have people either then or previously who have been convicted of sin and know they need to stand before God and their fellow man. But you immediately see, as we're going to look at this morning in some scriptures, you immediately see in the Bible something uns- almost it's stated, but it's stated just so plainly that it's in the background. That these Christians were not saved alone. They did not become children of God alone in their own little bubble, going back to their to their own house and their own little breakfast table to have a relationship with God. They were not saved like that. That's not the form that it took. 
And I don't believe that was accidental at all that the, that the church and the being saved together are presented together in the Bible for us to understand. Now, in our modern thinking, modern ways of thinking, there are, that's not the way it is. As you can see, if you've got, if you're, if you're not so old that your eyes are really bad, I have very white hair and I have a lot of wrinkles and th- places that are sagging and falling off that shouldn't be and all that because I'm 71 years old tomorrow. And so I have a different, I was raised in a different world almost and you can sociologically see this. Yes, I became a Christian at a young age when I was 13 because I couldn't stand any more the fear of hell and I came forward at the end of a sermon and said, I want to be baptized because I don't want to go to hell. That's what I did. And when I did that, I was individually acting on my own conscience, my own belief in what the Bible said to do. And that's why I became a Christian. But immediately, without even realizing it, I was immersed in a local church. And I had brothers and sisters and older and younger than me in that local church. My brother Dan was baptized uh, the next day. You know, and so forth. So uh, we were all, two, three of us were baptized then. But we were in a local church and we grew up that way. But now in my lifetime, what's happened is that there's been a separation in that idea. People today that you meet, your friends and neighbors, and maybe you have the idea that we become a Christian as a standalone project. We, ha- we have our own personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our boyfriend. We sing I love Jesus songs because he's our boyfriend. I'm kind of being a little facetious there, a little sarcastic. And we have this personal relationship with Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And so we don't need a church. We don't need other people. It's all about me and Jesus. And we're good friends. Me and Jesus are cool. This is the way the people beginning in my generation on down think about religion or Christianity. Is there an element of Christianity that's between you and God? Absolutely. And whether anybody else is doing right or not, you have to do what's right. And sometimes you have to be by yourself and you have to, you are personally obligated to grow. I preach sermon after sermon in various ways to try to convince you and myself that I need to spend more time alone with God in the Word, more time in prayer by myself, and more time thinking about that and how I stand before God. I preach, I can't even tell you how many sermons and lessons are about that. But I'm afraid because my background is enmeshed in this sea of the church that I'm overlooking the most obvious thing. And that is, it's all connected. Being a part, being a Christian is being in the church. It's being a part of the body of Christ. You cannot be a Christian without the church. It's impossible because being a Christian puts you into the body of Christ, which is the church. Now, you might be disconnected for various reasons from a local church where you need to be, but the Bible keeps pointing you back to a local church in the text of the New Testament. So that's something that we're missing. And I want to go back and emphasize this. One of my... uh, one day, I think my children are going to catalog all my crazy ideas. And uh, one of my niece's husbands, the other day, I think he was joking, maybe not. He, he is a, he's an entrepreneurial kind of guy. So he says, I want to follow you around with a video camera, and just tape 
the rants that you go on all the time at dinner and other places in the living room. I want to take these rants, you know. We could make a YouTube channel make a lot of money. He's probably right. I went on at least two rants with Judy uh, laying in bed last night trying to figure out how to go to sleep. I went on two rants with her. And, and so, you know. But, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, but, but be that as it may, one of my rants is, for example, that the songs that we sing, I don't think up here, we sing so many, not we, this church, but in general, the new songs. I go to various churches, other tech, even places like Texas, and there's lots of new songs. I got nothing against new songs. I've written new songs, me and Judy have, but most new songs are Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And they are about love, about love stories. And they're about I. Every new song is I. I, 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 I. But the old songs were we. They were about we're marching to Zion. Come we that love the Lord. You just look in your book. Now there's a lot of I songs back there too, but there are many more we songs. You go to the 800s and on in our book and see, and you flip through, and it's all about me and Jesus. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But you can see the difference in the... And so my little rant is always about the difference in emphasis. You can take a lot of these new songs in my head when I'm sitting here singing, not here in other places, but I'm singing. I'm substituting the word we for I in those songs. And it works just as well. And you know what it does? It creates a feeling that we are in this together. Me and my brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers were together as Christians in this. And I can tell you, among many other things and reasons, and I haven't even got to the scriptures yet, I'm sorry, but I can tell you that we are going to have to learn how to hang together in the coming years. And I know you are, if you're younger than me, are going to have to learn how to hang together and depend upon your brothers and sisters because hard times are coming unless something big happens that we can't foresee for Christians. We are now living in the negative world and they are all, they are definitely against us, especially New Testament Christians. So we need to hang together. Okay. And that what one of the, who was it? Was it Benjamin Franklin that said and taken on when they began to sign that declaration of independence? He said, we must all hang together or we shall certainly hang separately. Something like that. Interesting thoughts. They, they were serious about that. Because you can think that as long as I don't... This is the point that that Mordecai made to Esther. But it was her job to go before the emperor and risk her life. She was going to risk her life to go before the emperor and say, you need to stop this plot against the Jews. She said, if he doesn't call me and I go before him, he can turn his thumbs down and they'll take me out and execute me on the spot. And Mordecai told her, well, you know, you can do what you want. But if you think that by you being in the palace and being the queen now, if you think that's going to spare you when they come for the Jews, when they come for the Jews, they will find out you are one and you will hang separately. Like all the rest of us are being hung. So we Christians have to hang together. And this is a missing element in, in the background thinking. You know, like I always say, fish don't know they're in water. Because there's so many things in the background. We, they don't, they don't, fish don't think about that they're in water until you dump them out on the floor when you break the fish tank. Now they realize, uh-oh, that was water. And so it is with Christians. We don't realize the blessings we have in Christ. 
because our thoughts are different. So let's go to Ephesians. And I want to show you this right here in this, this, te- this simple text. We think it's about something else, but it's not at first. He's speaking to people that he wants to change their life. He wants these Ephesians to be different than they are and different than they were. He wants them to have a new life. That's why I use this as a text for our class on Thursday nights. I therefore, verse 1 of Ephesians 4, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. How are you going to do that? Well, the first thing is the characteristics. You need to do it with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me pause right there. Okay, Steve and Joel, whoever, please lead songs that say I. I'm not saying you shouldn't lead songs that say I. That's all fine. I'm just trying to... Pappy's just making a point, as the movie says. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to show you that there is a difference. And begin to notice that in the songs you sing. Who's singing to who? Who are you singing to? And you'll see lots of those are singing to each other. So he says you have to do it with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now he goes, he picks up on this word unity, and he says there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. There's seven things. The complete number. Could have picked out more, but picked out these seven. All deserve attention, but that's not our point today. What's the key word there? One. The most important word in that, in those verses is the word one. That's the point he's trying to make. He could have talked about, you know, two this and three that and all that, but he only talked, he talked about the one. But to each one of us was grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ gave a gift. What is this gift? Oh, well, it's the gift of me playing the, the, the uh, you know, the, the accordion. Christ gave me a gift to play the accordion. I think I should do that in the worship because Christ gave me this gift. Christ gave me the gift of picking pockets. So I should be able to do this because it's Christ's gift to me. I'm, once again, might be being a little bit sarcastic, but you see, this is not what this verse is saying. Re- read it. It's not what it's saying. It's not he gave you a particular gift. What gift did he give you? Well, therefore he says, He gave a gift to each one of you by giving it to all of you. That's what he's going to say. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Necessary inference. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things, might fill all things. And he gave, here are the gifts. He lists them. Some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He lists five gifts. They all have to do with teaching the word. Every gift here is about teaching the word of God through the Holy Spirit. That's how, how did Christ say he was going to give this gift? Didn't Christ say that I can't, I can't tell you all things now, John 16, but when I go away, I'll send the comfort and he will do what? He will guide you into all truth. He's speaking to the apostles. So that's the same passage. He gave these men gifts. Now he lists them as apostles and prophets. We don't have those active gifts today, which is another whole subject. But we have what the apostles wrote and what the prophets spoke. We have that. So that's the gift that he gave. 
And he gave some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He gave these different gifts with different jobs. They all revolve around teaching the Word. That's the gift that Christ gave to you and therefore to us, to men. Why did he do this? Well, he did it for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Once again, he gave gifts to men to use and individually gave you the word. Why? So that you could equip the saints or the saints could be equipped. And so they could do the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, that's another part of the sermon we'll come back to perhaps later. But you have three gifts here, three works of the church. You have building up through evangelism. That's the, that's this, uh, that's the third, well, the first one, the equipping of the saints is to equip you to grow in Christ, to learn about Christ, to serve Him and to do what He wants you to do. That's the equip, that's the edification part. To equip the saints. To do the work that should be done. One of the works you do once you become grown, more mature, is you do the work of ministry. That's the work of serving each other and serving your fellow man. And there's lots of ways you can do that. It's the work of serving or ministry. And to the edifying of the body of Christ. That really implies the idea of laying one brick on top of another and building the church. Not a building, but building the church through the teaching of men. So we take this group of believers and we keep adding bricks, individual stones in the house of God to increase and grow the house of God by individual teaching. That's evangelism. So evangelism, edification, and benevolence or ministry are the three works here. How long do you do this? Well, you do this until we all come to unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man or full-grown man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Well, how long is that going to be? Well, that's going to be till the end of time, I think, because we're never all going to be mature men in the stature of Christ Number one, and we're, even here, the mature man, you can be a mature man without being equal to Christ. But we're not all mature at any, any given time. This church has some very mature men and women. And this church has some very immature spiritually men and women because they're babes. They're new. They're not expected to be full grown men or women because they're, they can't be. Now, and then there's other churches like the one in Hebrews who had people who should have been mature, but weren't. That's another whole problem. But here he says these gifts were given so we can all grow up in Christ and be complete. How does that happen? Does that happen because we all go to Bob Evans and eat biscuits and gravy a couple once a month? Is that how you build up the body of Christ? Well, that's how I build up my body so I don't shrink away to nothing. You know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to shrink away. So I have, you know, the blueberry pancakes and then I have rotated in the biscuits and gravy. And, you know, you that's how you build up your body, physical body. Well, how do you do that? Well, you eat food. That's how you do it. You get nourishment. How do you build up the body of Christ? You give it spiritual nourishment. The spiritual nourishment is given through the gifts that the apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists teachers give. It's the word of God. That's the spiritual food that the body of Christ consumes to grow. It isn't because we have a potluck that we grow. Only The only reason a potluck would help this work is if it causes us to be closer together in some way. But edification occurs through the word. And the, the evidence of that is, in verse 14, 
that we are no longer children tossed to and fro. That implies that there's a time in your life when you might be a child spiritually, emotionally, tossed to and fro. You believe everything that comes on. Whatever Oprah says, you believe it. You know, whatever's on. (laughs) I shouldn't say this. I was teasing someone here who told me that they saw something on the view. And I stopped them. I said, now look, you're expecting me to accept the fact that a Christian watches the view. I said, I don't know if I can accept that fact or not. But I said, I'll try. But you get tossed to and fro everywhere with everything that comes along. There's no stability because they teach only the doctrines of human men and human beings and unstable people. We got to get past that. We've got to grow up in Christ. So the word gives us stability. So they come along with some new thing next year. Oh my, it's a new thing. Well, that's why I always tell, I already know the news because it's old. The news you hear on the news is old news. Once you become a mature Christian, you see that it's old news. Humans have tried the same things for thousands of years. These, These same ideas are recycled over and over. They never lead anywhere. There's no miracle essential oil that's going to change your life and heal you of all your diseases. There's no new philosophy involving crystals and diamonds and whatever that's going to fix you. And, and Or yoga. I mean, going down the list of all these things are going to revolutionize human beings and they never do because they're just this trickery of men, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You need to hold on to the word. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Now this verse is, this verse is yelling at me. It's not speaking to me. This verse is yelling at me as a preacher. Why would I say that? Well, because it doesn't say to speak the truth. I can do that up to a degree. It tells me to speak the truth in love. Hmm. That's a whole, that's a whole different challenge, isn't it? To speak the truth in love. The truth doesn't change, but how I teach the truth is important too, along with what I say. Therefore, he says as Christians, we have to eventually learn to speak the truth in love, which means concern for the other person. Love doesn't mean mushy feelings of affection. That's not the way the word's used here. It means what is in the best interest of the other person. Sometimes what's in the best interest of the other person is what's direct. I I judged a chicken show yesterday in Orlando. All young people, all young people under 18. I don't know how many chickens were there. It was too many. But anyway, so after the show, a couple of these young people come to me as the judge. I got my white jacket on and my tie. Very official looking. It's the only way they trust you when you have a white jacket on. They said, oh, no, I don't trust people in white coats, you know, because they're doctors. I said, well, do you trust the people in black coats better? Are you waiting for the people in black coats to come along? I said, they'll carry you out. You know, the black coat people will carry you out and bury you. You're like, those people better? They have black coats on? Well, okay, well, never mind. Don't, don't. Anyway, so these kids come up and their parents, what about my chicken? Why did it get this score? Okay. Don't ask if you don't want to know. I, I told him, I said, well, are, can you brace yourself for a moment? Your chicken is terrible. For what it's supposed to be. It doesn't represent the breed well. Or it has, this is a major problem, major flaw that you can't fix. It's genetic, it's 
not going to be fixed. Some of the things wrong. I picked up a really nice chicken with manure all over its feet yesterday. And it wasn't brand new manure, which I'll overlook. It was on there a long time. That told me something. It told me that young person didn't spend any time taking care of that chicken and grooming it. So I marked it way down. And I said, so I, I told a couple of them, do you want to really know what's wrong? And they said, yes. And then I told them plainly and nicely, smiling, told them nicely what was wrong. And they said, thank you. And I thought, well, if they really mean that, that's good. Because they're, I told one of them, you're wasting your time and money to bring this chicken back to a chicken show. I told them that. You're wasting your time and money. Because no judge that knows what they're doing is going to give it a good score because it's just not any good. Is that too blunt? Is that speaking the truth in love? Oh, no, you should have told them, oh, it's fine, you know, go home and give it a bath or pluck off a feather or two and I'll be fine. Would it? No, it'd just be, it would be clean, but it'd still be ugly. And I know that speaks to the heart of some people in this audience. You know, we can take a bath, but you know, still ugly. But I don't enter beauty contests either. There's the difference. I know what I look like. You should, you know what you look like. We don't enter beauty contests because we know what the outcome's going to be. Do you keep bringing? Anyway, the point I'm making is speaking the truth in love is hard. It doesn't mean you always say things people like, but it means you do it with their best interest at heart and you do it from a place of true affection toward them because they're a human being. Now, here's the verse I want to get to, and we've got to stop. He says we need to grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. So we have a head of the body, and all the body needs to grow up to fit that head and to be like the head and to get its life from the head of the body. Every member of the body, whether it's a little fingernail or whether it's the heart, whatever it may be, has to be connected to the head and getting its life from the head to do its part. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now, the implication, see, there's an implication in that statement that you might overlook. The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. What that says, in essence, is that at its core, the parts of the body are disconnected. Doesn't mean that. They're not joined. They don't have to be joined. So yes, I've baptized many people. They were supposed to become connected to the body, but they're still laying over there on the side of the room. They never joined, they never joined themselves to the body or the head. They just go off on their own. And they don't have a head. They don't have a body. They just become a piece of a body over there. What happens to that in real life? They die. They rot. Because they're not connected to the head and the other parts of the body. So the implication here is yes. You can be a Christian who's disconnected from other Christians and from the church. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. We need it to you to individually grow, but you need to grow with the other people. So we have to be joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Every joint, that's a piece, supplies something. Gives something to the church, to the whole thing. I don't know what it is for you, and you don't know, may not know what it is for me, but all of us have a part to play. 
And it may be something that you don't see what your part is. I was telling him in the class the other night, I was telling him one thing that people, I'll, I'll give him the example. There was a, there a couple of young people that were there. And I said, you know, you all come. I'm very grateful for that. I couldn't tell you how grateful. Can't tell you how grateful I am for that. But they come and they come to church. Well, what am I? I'm just a kid. I'll tell you what you do. You don't even know it. Every once in a while, we have people walk in this door from someplace else that need to hear the gospel, that need a church, and we need them. We just don't know it all yet. And they walk in and they sit here and they look around. And if all they see is this white hair or bald heads, we, they may like us fine, but they're going to go somewhere else if they can because they got young kids. And they don't know how that's going to work out. But when they see you young people sitting in the pew, even though you're not saying a word, they see you sitting there and they see you, they see you mothers and fathers struggle to bring your children. I love to see that. I don't care how much noise they make. I really don't. I know it gets me in trouble with some older people, but I don't care in many ways. We have a room for that, but they need to be here because then when somebody comes in and sees those young people and they tell me this, this church is alive. They've got young people. They'll come here and they'll build up the body of Christ here. You do something. Some of you other people, you say, well, all I do is I just come and sit in the pew. I know. And everybody that's sitting here, when we have guests and other people that need to hear the gospel and they come in, they feel stronger and better because you're sitting here even though they don't know you and you may never say a word or do anything more than just sit here in your view because you're encouraging each other. I tell you what, you... I've been in this building when there's only six or seven of us a time or two. It doesn't happen very often. What's the lowest? Eight? I don't know. Something like that. You know, if there had been ten more people, wow, the difference in the day. But where were those ten people? I don't know where they were. I hope they had a good excuse because we needed them. I needed to be encouraged and I wasn't. I was discouraged. So this is why Paul, why the writer of Hebrews says Hebrews 10.24, don't forsake the assembling. Because you, to stimulate and provoke one another to good works. That passage is parallel with this. The passage in Hebrews 10 is parallel to this passage. And so he says every joint supplies something according to the effective working by which every part does its share, whatever that share may be, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This passage is about individual joints and pieces of the body joined together to do something together that causes the whole body to grow. And so I would summarize it as we close with this. Your new life in Christ is governed by lowliness and gentleness and deeply involves our connection to the whole body. He used the word one repeatedly to emphasize that we are believers are not on our own. We're all one connected together. And so the body of believers needs each one to grow, to do their share, and to be knit together as one. Now, I want to close with one passage. I know it's late, but I want to close with a passage from Mark chapter 10. The background of this story, and it's also in Matthew 19, I think, in Mark 10 here. The, the fellow we call the rich young ruler has come to Christ and says, uh, more or less, I've known Moses from my youth up. I've kept these commandments. What can I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him, Go and sell all you have and come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And the disciples are kind of stunned by this. Rich people, and Jesus tells them, he says, 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. They're stunned by that statement. Rich people were the good people. They were the people that God has blessed and he likes them. Sometimes there's evidence for that. That's true sometimes. But they could, and Jesus Jesus says to them, no, maybe it's impossible with men, but with God all things are possible. And they were just taken aback. And then Peter says to him, here's the context. Peter began to say to him, see, we, we apostles, we're, sti- we're, we're, the cl- we're right next to you. We've left all and followed you. And he literally had. Peter had been in his nets working and Jesus came along and he followed him off. He literally left everything and followed him. So Peter wasn't exaggerating here. We've left all and followed you. What's going to happen to us? That's what he's asking. And Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last are first. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect up that passage in, in Mark 10.30 with what we've been talking about. You want to follow, you want to pick up from your nets and follow Jesus. You're on your own. Peter did that as an individual decision. What God promised Peter for that act of devotion was he would have more than he ever could have expected. Now in Christ, in the church, connected to other people than he ever had before. And I've seen this with my own eyes. I'll tell you, it's true in my life, even though I'm the one with the big family. I have Hundreds of times more brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers than ever had in my natural family, even though they're all good and they take care of each other. But I have a hundred, more than a hundred times more, thousand times more people that would take care of me and my wife because I serve Christ. Why? Not because I'm great, but because I have a family. And it's a huge family in Christ that I don't even recognize And you may not have that knowledge of that big connection out there. But I guarantee you, if any one of you was struck ill and needed a transplant or needed money, I could put out the word to your family that you don't know, and they would flood this place with so much money, we'd have to turn it away. We would have to stop telling. When disaster hit the saints in Fort Myers, where my brother is, partly because of him and partly because they're just brothers and sisters in Christ, They had to tell people, stop sending money. We can't use it. It's too much. What other group of people has that blessing in this world? You think most people in Port St. Lucie have that blessing that the work could be put out and next thing you know, they have way more than they need. You have this blessing because you're connected to the church. Now then there are others who who come and I see them when they come every now and then. They're, They're out there on the edge, barely connected. They don't have the brothers and sisters. Because they've never connected themselves to them. So that's the value of it. That's the value of being one in Christ. You can walk this new life. You can start walking this new life. Because not only do you have a connection to Christ. But you have all these other people who are with you in this. Now we're going to talk more about the church later. And we're going to talk about some of the bad things about the church. But not all of it's roses. Sometimes you just hate your brothers and sisters, don't you? I'm being facetious. Uh, Why are you smiling, Katrina? (laughs) 
<laughs> you're, you're right to smile. But I'm saying it's not all roses, but there's a reason why God connects it together. Get that reason. Thanks for listening this morning. I'm sorry if I bore some of you who've been in our class. I don't think it's completely, I don't think it's completely something the same, but we're going to sing this song now as we close. Number 50, Are You Washing the Blood? And we encourage you to come and become a Christian today based on your own need of salvation, your own desire to serve the Lord. Well, baptize you into Christ, you can be washed and made clean and you can begin to serve him. And you have a lot of people that will help you. That's what I want you to know. Can we help you today? Come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.